this list limitless possibility. I'm looking at my blade. And I'm Yannick Magnan. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? My professional update. Ooh. But first, we do have some follow-up. And the first item is a scheduling update. Uh, we would like just to mention that for the... Uh, 2021-2022 uh, holiday season, uh, Yannick and I will be taking a one-episode uh, one break. So the episode that is supposed to be released on January 2nd will be skipped and we will see each other two weeks after. And I forgot to take the exact date. January note. 16th. Thank you, Yannick. So um, we still have, ignoring this episode, uh, two more episodes in 2021 and then we will see you all uh on the on January 16th in 2022. In my list of items, the first item is from Richard that sent uh, a couple of notes about the episode I had, the last episode, episode 171, about my experience with Vapor 4. Uh, I would like just to note that I wish you uh, good fun with your uh, new project uh, about, I read here, database-driven, statically generated website again. So keep us posted because, again, I was uh, happy to hear that you were enjoying the episode and my experience uh, having fun with backend development. Next up, uh, I have a special note. I know Yannick wants me to be to go into <laughs> a bit more details than just saying that, but I would like to thank Yannick's dad, Jean-Pierre, for uh, lending me his X100S a Fujifilm camera uh, since getting it about... It was two weeks ago. Yeah, it was two weeks ago. It was just before we deployed the last episode. Yep. So I had two big opportunities to use the camera. So I already have a couple of notes. But again, I want to force myself to uh, experience it even more. But I already have some uh, good opinions about it. I have already some things I would like to improve. And that I need to see if the newer generations like to improve. But I was about to say overall. But no, no, I'll, I'll tease you uh, for today. But yes, uh, I'll use this follow-up item just to say thank you to Jean-Pierre and that Stay tuned. You'll hear my opinions about that and whether I'll finally uh, buy one or not. Stay tuned for that. And that is it for my follow-up. What about you, Yannick? I have some combined follow-up for episode 110, which was the episode on Ooh. Battle Royales, and episode 119, which was our episode on Final Fantasy VII. Because yesterday, Final Fantasy VII, The First Soldier, which is the Final Fantasy VII Battle Royale, came out. Uh, and I played it a little bit before we recorded today. And oh. I don't like it. Ooh. Well, how come? So the game itself has a lot of interesting ideas that I've not seen explored in Battle Royale games before. There are item upgrade systems. There are summons that you can summon giant monsters that deal damage in an AoE attack. There's magic. Uh, so stuff that you don't really see often where there are more grounded settings in most Battle Royale games. The problem is all of these things have buttons that need to be displayed on screen. And that means that somewhere between half and two thirds of the screen is covered in buttons. Oh, shit. And I have an iPhone XR. So it's not like I have a small phone. It's like it's a I have a relatively big phone or average sized by normal standards, whatever the fuck that means. Uh, and literally at least half the screen is covered in buttons, which means that you sort of can't see what you're doing. Uh, one of the things I don't <laughs> like about mobile battle royales in general is they tend to gravitate towards third-person cameras. I generally dislike third-person cameras in games anyway, but uh, in mobile, the problem that that gives me is it's very hard to aim at the thing you're trying to shoot because the thing you're trying to shoot is smaller because you're not seeing from outside of your character's eyes. You're seeing from behind the character and your character is smaller uh, than they mm -hmm. should be, right? So... I'm not a fan of that idea, but I think a lot of the ideas that are in this game are really, really cool. I just would like to play them with a PS4 controller and not with the touchscreen. Uh, I think if you put this game on PC or on console, a lot of the issues around its complexity go away because half the screen isn't covered in buttons, uh, which is interesting. And like there, there's really cool stuff. Like, like I said, like there are vending machines that you can find around the map that let you upgrade items. And that's not an item, uh, that's not really a thing I've seen before. Like you can kind of do that in Apex Legends now with the crafting system, but it's not to the same degree where you have like combinations of items together that can upgrade. It's r really interesting. So I'll play it a little bit more just to give it a chance. Also, it crashes on me quite a bit. 
uh, which is not great either. Um, but my first impressions are not that positive, which is unfortunate because I was really excited when I saw it. It looks pretty, but it doesn't really control that well. And do you know if it supports like the iOS game controllers framework? I don't think it does. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. So yeah, uh, maybe I'll report back if I have uh, some more positive things to say. Otherwise, this is probably all I'm going to say about it and don't waste your time <laughs> with it. Uh, it's unfortunate, but that's just how I feel for now. Is that it for follow-up? Yep. Then let's jump into your main topic. All right. So it's been about two months since I've left my previous job. And I told myself when I quit the job that uh, I'd take the rest of 2021 to focus on personal projects and not really think about what comes next. So uh, if you're listening to this episode thinking that uh, I have answers for you about what I'm doing next, I don't have them yet. Uh, but I do want to uh, think out loud on what it is I've done at work over the past few years and what I've been doing with Cesaro over the past few months and how that has at least impacted kind of what I want to do next. Ooh. So let's start out with work. Um, generally when i think about like what are the goals of me as a developer and my old job i can think of about three things uh, i can think of making clients more productive reducing friction in users everyday lives and optimizing inefficient workflows uh, keep that in mind as we discuss the two main categories of clients uh, that i was working with at this job uh, so the, the first category of client is e-commerce. Uh, these were mostly traditional retail stores that were transitioning to online retail. And by traditional retail, I mean like small store chains, like mostly stuff that is exclusive to the province of Quebec and not like big retail stores and chains and all that stuff. Um, we were building both the storefront and the backend tools to deal with stuff like order fulfillment, inventory management, all that stuff. And one of the cool things about working with e-commerce clients is that the advice that we had on inefficient workflows and logistics was welcomed. Uh, and the general idea was like, from the clients anyway, you guys know online retail, retail better than us. That's why we hired you. So your input is valued. You guys know what the data we're collecting in our uh, apps let us analyze better than we do because we're not data people. We're store people. Um, so like one example, a concrete example of something that I noticed myself was that, uh, there was a truck that was shuttling inventory between stores. And if you scheduled it an hour earlier, all of the orders that were waiting on those products could be fulfilled 18 hours faster. Hmm. People wow. really liked that. I noticed that because it was actually like saving noticeable amounts of time. And you really felt like your input was valued by the people you interacted with. What's really interesting is that your suggestions had impact that was measurable, literally. Uh, we have a lot of reporting for daily and weekly and monthly order fulfillment times and all of that stuff. You can cross-reference that data with customer satisfaction surveys. So when you're working for the e-commerce clients, you have sort of this fulfilling addictive feedback loop where if you see things that can be optimized, you can optimize them, and then you can see the numbers to prove that you actually succeeded in optimizing it. This could not be said about the enterprise clients. Before you go into enterprise client, it's kind of funny that you mentioned this fulfilling, like self-fulfilling feedback loop with your customers. And I don't think that for those types of customers, we were working in the same uh, type of business because we were, right? I work in the POS company that also does omni-channel commerce things online too that I'm not part of, but still. Uh, and this is all one of the main reasons I've stayed so, for so long at Lightspeed is I feel that we're improving people's life with the work we do. And that is, I think, a strong motivator for developers. Yeah, definitely. So enterprise clients. Uh, the domain here is completely different. We're building tools for HR departments mostly. Uh, these mean This means workforce management tools, whether it be uh, shift scheduling, internal job offer systems, uh, booking vacation days, tracking training requirements for various job tasks and scheduling training sessions for those that are not fully qualified. Uh, all of that stuff is stuff that we've done in our apps. And 
a lot of the time, actions in one or more of these systems have side effects on other systems. It, everything is talking to everything, and it's a giant, colossal mess. Uh, so not only do you need to be able to think about how these systems work in isolation, but you need to understand how they fit into the larger puzzle of interdependencies and how data flows from one to the other. And ultimately, when we had clients come to us and say, we would like this system to be developed into your applications... Uh, a lot of what I saw was inefficiency that was inherent in the workflow that I was being asked to digitize or re-implement. Clients mostly didn't seem open to the possibility that the problem that they're trying to solve is a workflow problem and not a technology problem. Sometimes they would come to us with like these elaborate Excel spreadsheets uh, and they would be like, can you just make this an app? And I'm like, well, yes, we can make this a web app, but... I'm not sure what you expect that to solve because the problem with this is not that it's not an app. It's that you have a human being performing synchronization between an Excel uh, spreadsheet and your backend system. And if you just replace the Excel spreadsheet with another app, but you don't ask us to make the sync thing because you want the human to keep doing it manually you're not going to solve any inefficiency in your workflow. Your workflow is flawed. And they just didn't want to hear it. Uh, so because of this, a lot of these projects weren't very motivating because it felt like the projects didn't really accomplish anything. It was just a different way of doing the same broken workflow. And in some cases, you could actually prove that there was not a productivity gain. But rarely you you rarely felt like there was actually a productivity gain after you made the new system, you just made a new system for the sake of making a new system and spending some IT budget, I guess, uh, which never feels that good. You want to at least feel like you made a difference. And here it just feels like, well, we changed technologies, but it's kind of a side grade. You didn't really gain anything from it. And any suggestions that I had towards how these workflows could be improved so that more work could be done server-side so that these cross-pollinating systems could be talking to each other on the server-side instead of having a human do the intermediation themselves, usually that just falls with, eh, we don't really care. Uh, so <laughs> ultimately, it's not my money being spent, but I'm the one making the software and it's not fulfilling to make software when that is the situation, right? Next up... I want to talk about uh, bus factor and aiming to be replaceable. Uh, so th these two expressions are two different point of views of the same issue from opposite ends of the org chart. Um, so bus factor is this expression that I learned earlier this year. It means how many employees need to get run over by a bus for a project to stall due to them being critical to the project's advancement. I don't want to wait a second. I, I don't want to make fun of you, but I kind of want to make fun of you. You, you, it you just recently learned about bus factor? I mean, I I knew about a uh, key person risk, which is like the the non-funny way of calling yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but I did not know the actual expression bus factor until this year. Okay. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Then I won't make fun of you. So uh, the idea behind bus factor is you ideally want to have as high a bus factor as possible as like the manager of a project or whatever. Uh, because it's a huge risk to your company to have a single point of failure. Uh, and the way you achieve having a higher bus factor in theory is uh, by reducing complexity on your project, having adequate and up-to-date documentation, and promoting training and education between team members. This is all great stuff. Uh, and ultimately, like the bus factor point of view is more so from the top of the org chart. It's the management point of view of like, this is something we should be working towards as as a team. Aiming to be replaceable is the flip side of that. It's the salary man bottom of the org chart uh, point of view on this. And uh, sort of the ideology behind that is treat all of your de development as if you were going to be gone in the short term. Uh, you don't want to lock yourself in a position where you're indispensable to daily operations because then you will feel trapped. And I mentioned this earlier in the year. Uh, I felt like I was indispensable to certain projects in a bad way and i wanted towards being not as critical to those projects uh, over time so that by the time we could travel again that i could actually travel and not be stuck at work uh so yeah that ultimately didn't end up happening i left instead yeah and i think one of the main maybe down 
downfall for this or like pitfall for like people that would go into this is at first it is gratifying and, and especially in the short term like people rely on you you get things achieved people are happy that you're getting t- things achieved but it is the constant pressure over time and for the long run that you know what like when the server goes down or that service goes down you're the only one that knows so you're the one waking up at 3 a.m to fix it up or all those downsides and that I think people, a lot of people don't realize those benefits becomes quick, not, I wouldn't say quickly toxic, but in certain environments it could be quickly and certain other, other ones, it could be just be like a, a slow burn. Yeah. And then you wake up like three years later, you realize what did happen? Like, what was the situation? Like, what, what was the cataclysm that made me feel so bad after these three years? And you can slowly backpedal it. It's like, oh yeah, okay. I was the only one that knows about this project, software, whatever. And people rely on that. Yeah. And often this is sort of mentioned in parallel with uh, sort of like the, this. I think this is more of a thing in the Bay Area than it is over here. But like people who quit jobs every six months to climb up the salary ladder because that is the most optimal way to get paid more as a developer or whatever. There's a bit of that here too. I won't lie. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I usually like, the most egregious examples I know are in the Bay Area, if I think of specific people. Fair. Like, I know. Um, but the idea is, is like, don't be too clever in your code. Document everything. Uh, empower those who report to you to take their own decisions instead of always waiting or relying on your input. Uh, actively coach people who may eventually take your place. Uh, all these things are great ideas, and they're things you can do from the employee point of view and not from the management point of view which i i really appreciate that like that is something i should have done more of honestly uh because sometimes you feel like like in this particular case i did feel a little bad that i was leaving even though i definitely needed to because i knew that i was this key person for a lot of projects and i was never really given the room to actually spread that knowledge until after i quit uh which is kind of a weird situation uh but in the future if i ever find myself in a similar situation i want to be more proactive about uh aiming to be replaceable now that funnily enough sort of offers an elegant segue into scissora because a lot of the mentality behind the things I'm trying out in that project are sort of directly influenced by these realizations. Uh, when we talked about Scissor last year, way before development even started on the project, when it was just an idea, uh, I mentioned that I was trying to make it something that uh, adheres to the principles of trivial technologies. Uh, and one of the pillars of that ideology is that the code base should be understandable by a beginner in two days and a skilled developer in a rainy afternoon. Before the emails come in, I want to be perfectly clear, I don't think it meets that mark yet. Um, uh, It's the goal, but it's not there yet. Um, But you ideally achieve that by having good documentation and simple design. And I think that working on Caesura, and especially working on Caesura in tandem with the video series that I'm doing about Caesura, allows me to practice expressing the intent and concrete effect of the code I write on a project that I'm passionate about. So it lets me at least practice the things I want to put into effect in the workplace uh, on a project that I'm actually interested in working on, which is always great. After we recorded the last episode, you told me that of all the app ideas I've ever had, this one seemed to be the most marketable. Is that correct? Oh my goodness. You don't know? Okay, usually I, when it's your episode, I do rare some preparation for the follow-up. Today, I was like, I need to tell Yannick that Caesura is a marketable thing and <laughs> that I understand that even with... Uh, remind me the name of the concept you said? Uh, Trivial Technologies. Right. And isn't it the one you mentioned in a couple of episodes back that also kind of implied that it needs to be open source and everything? It's public domain, actually. But yeah. Right. Yeah, I recall. I wasn't sure if it was open source or public domain. Yeah. I don't know where the, the conclusion of this episode is going, but I'm kind of here to remind you that I think you have a marketable idea that you also are passionate about. I agree, but I also think that monetizing Caesar directly would make the app worse. Hmm. It, and if you think about it, like think about what led to iTunes sucking. Why did iTunes eventually suck? Well, 
there are kind of two reasons for it, but they're hand in hand related. They kept packing features into it that people didn't need. And the other thing is it sort of became an advertising for Apple services. Uh, well, gradually over time, like originally it was, we're adding support to iPods because you can buy iPods for $300 and we have a 50% margin. Then it became, uh, we're putting ringtones and iPhones in there because those are like $500 thingies you can buy. And then it sort of became, oh, well, now we have the App Store and we take a 30% cut on everything. And now we have Apple Music, which is a subscription and you can pay $10 a month. And it just became about monetizing Apple more so than it became about being a good app. Right. No, I see your point. And again, maybe it's not the episode to fight about this, but TLDR, I do believe there's a lot of people like you that want a simple, like music player for their style and that they're willing to spend a lot of money to get that back in this day and age so yeah i I guess that's that's where i more or less feel about that but that's okay i think if you let me finish the pitch well not the pitch but like the the argument i'm making maybe you'll be more on my side for sure go on for sure there's a certain functionality ceiling you need to watch out for because honestly, if you look at the iTunes version of history, it's been dimin- diminishing returns after iTunes 4. iTunes 4 added music sharing on the network. That was pretty much the last useful feature that was added to iTunes. And you sort of don't really need to think about it after that. It was just more stuff that generated Apple revenue or support for iPods and stuff like that that was added afterwards. Mm-hmm. The problem is that if I monetize Azura directly, no matter the payment structure that I eventually go with or the business model uh i go with accepting money for your app creates an incentive to stuff in more features and that's not really what i'm going for uh if you put in more features you risk attracting feature uh, attracting users that were not interested in your app because it was missing a feature they wanted so yeah good customer acquisition that's good right uh, feature density in a given release actually gives you a clean cutoff point to offer paid upgrades if you, for some reason, are still doing that uh, in 2021. I don't think you are because there's no clean way to do it really anymore. Subscriptions, they need to justify themselves by offering something new from time to time instead of just collecting rent money from its users. If the goal for this app is that someday it gets to be feature complete, there's no real way you can monetize it in a way that doesn't disappoint all your customers. And that's sort of what I'm going with, which I, with why I'm saying monetizing, monetizing Cesura directly would make the app worse is I don't know how you do it and also have a ceiling where it gets to be feature complete one day. Hmm. Those are good points. But I still believe there's a huge market for people that want a feature complete music player in 2022 and are willing to pay for the ongoing cost of that. But again, uh, not really the uh, topic for this episode. I'm just trying to be a friend that is pushing you in the right direction, I guess. I, I guess. Um, let's just say that the topic continues. It's just it's leading into a different place that you're probably not expecting. Or maybe you are. I don't know. Uh, uh, but before we get to that, uh, I want to also talk about another thing that can contribute to feature group, which is not a monetization, which is being open source. One of the things that's recommended in the trivial technologies uh, ideology is to keep your projects manageable by limiting the scope of what you're developing to features you personally need or want. And the justification for that is because your project is open and hopefully easily tweakable, people who want other features will be able to add it in themselves. Uh, and there's sort of this uh, expectation, which is not always uh, agreed upon in the world of open source, that Open source is not necessarily open contribution. Uh, like there are a lot of people that when they contribute something to an open source project, they have the belief that because they did the work, it should be de facto be accepted into the main repository. They submit a pull request and like the features there, maybe you can argue about implementation details, but if the work has been done, like but because it's been done, it belongs in the project. And naturally that leads to feature creep because everyone feels like they can develop whatever feature they want and then they get committed into the main project and if nobody is there to say no uh you just get this giant feature creep project um 
So that's one of the things I actually appreciate about the Trivial Technologies ideology is because forks are encouraged and the goal is not to have a single main fork that is successful, but that the ideas can flow throughout the world of software and it's very hippie, dippy stuff. Uh, (laughs) I can freely reject ideas that I don't want to commit to maintaining if I don't see the need for them myself and I don't have to feel bad about it because it's clear that that's the policy. Mm-hmm. really what i'm trying to get to here is it's really cool to write software for yourself and just for yourself and not have to worry about what anyone else wants uh which is cool but it's not a real great way to make money or even really make friends uh so <laughs> oh come on yes i'm being a bit harsh on yourself but that that won't be too problematic okay so here's the thing i'm proposing what if instead of monetizing Cesura? What if the project being monetized is the Caesura Guided Tour video series? Mm-hmm. Caesura gets to remain a project that is primarily developed for myself with no expectations wrapped up in the desires of customers or contributors. Uh, the product that people would be supporting with their money is the video series sharing my learning process as I develop Caesura instead. I've been toying around with the idea of allowing people to show their support on Patreon or something similar to that because Patreon apparently wants to get into the NFT business, so I'm not so hot on that. (laughs) Uh, This seems like it would get me what I want. I wouldn't have to compromise my vision for the software I want to write because ultimately that is not the thing people are paying to support. I would have an educational series of videos that shows people how real software is made and how real developers learn to make software on the job, kind of. Mm -hmm. And I would get paid for it. Sounds hot. Uh, The problem is, right now, I have no audience. Uh, I have less than 300 YouTube subscribers right now. Uh, Caesar Guided Tour videos within the first week after an episode is posted are going down with every episode so far. Swan Song, which is my series about playing the Wonder Swan in uh, chronological order, is much more successful than this series already. So I thought, well, maybe I make a combined Patreon for my videos in general, where people who want to support uh, because they're fans of Swan Song can give money because they want want, want more Swan Song, and people who want more Cesare Guided Door videos can support for me support me that way as well. That might work too. Uh, the problem is, even then, I don't really have a pre-existing audience to make it work as my only source of income in the short term, obviously. And the problem is, if I return to a regular job, well, that just drains the energy that I would have to work on these projects significantly outside of work, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There's a reason that there weren't that many Swansong episodes released. Uh, in fact, there were no Swansong rep- uh, episodes released for the last three years until this month. I need to have the time to sit down and make energy, uh, make videos regularly if I expect people to support me for making them. And if I have to work a day job and then come home and have no energy to make those videos, it's not going to grow while I'm working a regular job. So I'm kind of like a mess in that perspective right now. <laughs> like, I don't know if this idea, like, I think this idea has potential, but the thing is it requires a lot of work to actually get it to the point where it can actually work. And I don't know if I have the time and money to put behind that, let's say. Mm-hmm. So, it's a very short episode now that I'm realizing, but that's actually as far as I've gotten in my thinking process. Uh, listeners, of course, can feel free to chime in with their thoughts and suggestions. I think in general, it's a really hard time to be excited about the tech industry. Uh, a lot of the software I rely on for day-to-day stuff seems to be much worse than it was a decade ago. Like it's, I know everyone is excited about modern notes apps, but I hate every modern notes app and I hate, love the ones that I had 10 years ago more than I like the ones that are out right now. Uh, I can say the same for music, and that's why I'm working on Caesura. Uh There's just a lot of software that just really sucks right now, and it was better 10 years ago, and I don't know why. Uh, seeing more and more companies get onto the NFT and crypto bandwagon and making it a pillar of their business is absolutely heartbreaking. Like this week, we've seen Discord, Reddit, uh, Twitter wants to make stupid hexagon avatars. If you have an NFT as your avatar, like oh, it's fucking stupid. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg's obsession with the metaverse is not going to end well for anyone. Uh, it was already hard enough to find jobs in tech that weren't horrible in some way or another before. 
But now that the tech industry is in a rough in a rough patch, it's especially depressing to be looking for jobs in the tech industry because everything looks hopeless and depressing. I don't know. Uh, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Uh, do you have anything to cheer me up with or uh, recommendations or ideas or things to consider? Yes, I do. Uh, literally about just the last few sentences. Um, without going into too much details, like... I know some of my ex-colleagues that are looking at the market and were looking at the market. And I would like you to know that there's still gems out there. And I'm not talking about my current job. Like, that's not out that. But I was discussing with people recently that switched places and they were able to find, literally by accident, like some opportunities came to them that was literally what they wanted. They were able to mix iOS development with passion topics that they have in their personal life or just in their personal interests but also combine that with developing an app on and things like so yes the big tech companies are making a lot of noise but there are still small players around there's still the type of merchants that you mentioned people there's still a lot of people especially with the pandemic that needs to be online that needs people to understand the internet let's call it this way and if if it is something that you've enjoyed i'm not, like i'm 100 percent sure that there's a shit ton of market for that still but there's also places where you could take your passion of app development, especially to go back to your comments about you feeling that the apps, you enjoy the apps from 10 years ago more than the apps of today. And possibly you could help people build such app in their specific domain uh, compared to what you're doing right now. And a little bit in the, in the same vein of what you're doing with Cezura, right? You, you're, you want to have a music player like iTunes 4, and it's no longer on the market. And my understanding is even if today you were wanting to spend $10,000 just to buy some software, and I'm giving a big number just to make it sound crazy, like there's more or less nothing available that will make you remember or make you want to use like how you enjoy iTunes 4. And I still believe there's a shit ton of different topics different domains where this type of approach is still needed and is still welcomed so that's kind of my pep talk yeah i'm not sure it's working but uh, i don't know i've had a weird day and i'm sneezing a lot so maybe that's why i'm not fully open to it right and last but not least um i know you mentioned a bit about you didn't mention exact view accounts but you mentioned a couple of things uh regarding the seizure like we're at video number three at the time of recording. Yeah, so, I finished four and uploaded four that is going up on Sunday when this episode goes up uh, right today. So, again, not to toot our own horn, but like if you talk to professional podcasters that we're not, uh, it, you, like one thing that they always mention is having a clear schedule. And I think... You're having that with Tijeran, I think that's going to be important. But the other thing too is, and I know you struggle with that in the past and still sometimes today, like you'll need to be not afraid to do shameless plugs because that's how you grow your audience, especially in a place where what you are now marketing is not the Sejura guided tour or even Swangson. You're literally marking, marketing your own opinions your own takes on those topics right because if i contribute for you to do things it's not because i want to yes it could be because i want to see you more do more of those things but a good example uh, that i can mention again car example you'll see why it's i think it's important to is uh m3 m539 restoration on youtube mm-hmm. which i mentioned in previous episodes where uh, certain the person running the the YouTube channel, also as a Patreon. And literally, people are giving me money to fix broken BMWs. Like, that's how he uses the money. And if you look at a lot of car YouTube content, it's literally using ad money to make 
financial sense of building broken cars that if you were you and I buying them today, they will make zero financial sense to make them, to repair them and keep them running for the sake of more or less creating a show. And yeah, or even content. like going back to a couple episodes ago when we were talking about uh, Gravis, who does the weird uh, uh, camcorder reviews and who did the mini disc camcorder review. And I think he right. had to buy two to get all the parts to actually get one working. Uh, like that is, I, I honestly, sometimes I'm shocked how financially it seems to make sense for these people to make these videos because I can't make sense of it myself, knowing how little you make off of YouTube ad money. It's like, how much money are you swimming in to actually make these videos? But at the same time, like, yeah, clearly it works because there's like retro tech is huge on YouTube for that. Uh, cars, right. uh, of course, all that stuff. And I don't, I don't want to make it kind of a binary categorization, but from what I've seen, especially in the YouTube car world, there's kind of two types. And I don't want to make it two types, but let's, for the sake of the argument, let's make it two. Like, there's the rich people trying to fake you that they're rich or that they, they are using their money to finance the YouTube thing. And the ad is just like more or less interest, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Uh, and there are people that took risk, like that literally go back to my car example, that bought car using their credit card, maxed it, and they were like, let's see what happens and let's continue making YouTube videos because if they don't work, I owe a big bill on my credit card because of that, right? Yeah. And... Again, you don't want to say that it will work for everybody, but it seems that for this type of entertainment, especially where you feel that Cezura as a product is not something you want to monetize, but if you decide to monetize yourself, then it might become a viable product. Yeah, or even just like for Swan Song, what's interesting about that is, so right now I'm doing the whole thing off of emulators because... It, even before prices spiked up because of COVID, and mm-hmm. even then I can't import anything from Japan right now, uh, Swan games are very rare because not a lot of people bought Wonderswans, shockingly enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I sort of have to play through emulators. The problem is the emulators available on Macs are not particularly good and accurate. Uh, and recently what's happened is that the Mr. FPGA project, which is... I don't have the time to explain what FPGAs are, but basically (laughs) assume hardware accurate emulation by having reprogrammable chips that can simulate the exact circuit that is on the Wonderswan board, right? Right. So it's not limited to, uh, because like sometimes for emulation on uh, software emulators, you have to cheat because the CPU and the CPU has to emulate the whole circuit uh, I mean, your computer CPU has to emulate the whole circuit of the Wonderswan. And that would be really, really, really expensive if you actually did it accurately. And you couldn't even do some things because some things run in parallel faster than your computer can model it with all of its threading and cores and all of that stuff. Whereas FPGAs literally are just a reprogrammable board. So you give it like a a description file of what the board you're trying to emulate is, and it just does that in magic uh, because I don't know how they work. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I agree with you in magic. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it gets way above my pay grade really fast. Uh, and someone made a Wonderswan core for the Mr. FPGA, which means you can Ooh. go and get a Mr. board for like $350, $400. I think they cost now uh, as complete kits. And you can install the Wonderswan core on it, and you basically have a Wonderswan with TV out, which is not something that exists otherwise. Like, one guy in France modded Ooh. his and got it to work, but nobody else has. Uh, which means I would actually be able to do, like, hardware-accurate videos of the Wonderswan games that I play instead of this crappy whatever emulator is available on the Mac that doesn't crash when I play this game. And it, even for certain games, I've run into issues where I've had to ask friends on Windows can you play this game and get footage for me because I can't emulate it on my Mac, which is a problem. So like I was thinking if I get a certain level of, let's say Patreon support, I could actually put that towards buying a Mr. FPGA uh, to actually improve the quality of the videos and do that kind of stuff. So it's like their ideas for how the process could be improved and like incentives that could be given to fans of my work to support me by making the videos better themselves. 
Yeah, I think you should put it out there. Because, okay, uh, while you were talking, A, I was listening, and B, I was looking at something quick. So I'm slowly but surely going back through your uh, Swangs on videos. And it feels to me that while you'll say my numbers are low, like I'm at 35, 38 now. I'm not clicking all of them, but I'm scrolling. Okay, yeah, now they're slowing down a bit. But the at least the first five I click from zero to 35, these seems to be always above like 350 views, 450, 400 views. And I felt that even at that time, when you started to do that, you did have a small but dedicated fan base. And... I wouldn't be surprised that if you start saying like, hey, to possibly when go back to the output I used to have and also even possibly increase it or even make it higher quality, here's what I need. And I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if you'll have a, a couple of uh, years. That the we'll the other that thing message. that's really interesting to put this into perspective is if you go look at the most recent Swanson video, uh, which came out early this month, right? Within 24 hours, it had like seven comments that were all like, oh, I'm so happy this is back, which means like, I don't have a huge audience, but the people who are there are very into this uh, because I'm the only person who's doing it on on YouTube right right now. Where maybe if we diverge onto that, you might have a problem where the communities of iTunes 4 lover and the Swanson lover are two different communities that having that under the same channel might be a bit problematic, but for sure at... In the beginning, that might be a good idea to do it this way, for example. Yeah. I guess we spend maybe the last 10 minutes just more or less saying, why is it not live, the Patreon page? I think we, I personally am ending up in this conclusion. Mm, I could do it. Um, most of it is already ready. Uh, it's just to press the button to do it. Then I guess that's the conclusion of this week's episode. I guess tune in uh, next episode and find out if I press the button or not. I hope you press the button. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> Any final thoughts before we wrap this up? Uh, I think I'm going to run through two boxes of Kleenex today. That's going to be great. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, no, that's it for this week's episode. Sorry for the short episode this week, everyone. But um, if you stay tuned until the end end of the episode, you might have a little bonus. Ooh, but before we talk about the bonus, let's do the outro. So you can find the possibly limited show notes of this episode at limitlesspossibility.net. Oh yeah, I've got like two links. That's going to be great. Yeah, yeah. So limitlesspossibility.net slash 172, 172. You can also find our back catalog of, of longer episode at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast you can find us individually on twitter i'm at lukonosh that's l-u-c-c-o-n-o-u-c-h-e and you can find yannick at sakarina that's s-a-k-u-r-i-n-a and i expect it is the same username on patreon Uh, yes actually but uh (laughs) if i press the button just saying find yannick on patreon not putting no pressure here at least let me like make sure that they're not actually going to launch any NFT stuff soon before I <laughs> promise a Patreon. Fine, I say Patreon, but any type of software, like since then, multiple platforms have come out for that do a similar yeah. thing. So choose what, which one you want and then just press the button. Yeah. And on that note, see you all in two weeks. See you in two weeks. Okay, so we have a top secret post show uh, that is not so secret because I spoiled it in the episode. Yeah, you spoiled it. I'm kind of disappointed that you spoiled it, though. Yeah. Because I wanted to start the post show by saying we listen to a shit ton of like, the typical Apple tech podcasts, and they, uh, especially ATP is well known for their post show where people get confused when, especially when they listen back to back, where is the end of the episode because it's just those three rambling. I'm a bit surprised that in seven years of this podcast, we never, ever did a post show. Usually, if there are bloopers, I'll tack them in at the end, if there are any, but they're right. quite rare. Um, yeah, so I guess it's time for a new change. Uh, I don't think this is going to be regular, but <laughs> no, this week no, we have a very uh, out-of-character question. I want Kikarivi to teach me how I'm supposed to corner in manual transmission. Now, before oh, before yes. you react to that, I need to oh, set yes, the context. I remember now.
<laughs> yeah, uh, but I remember now because you reminded me that we had we had a a, a possible post show for this week, yeah. and I was like, "You're talking about manual transmission." And I was like, "I remember we had a topic, but I forgot." So okay, that's good. So yeah. set up the stage. Okay, so I've been playing Initial D Special Stage on the PS2 this week, and the Ooh. Initial D race games are the only race games I played manual transmission exclusively. Not even in G. GT Sport or that's it, GT Sport, but I don't play manual anywhere else. Huh. Okay. Despite that, everything I know about driving in manual transmission, I learned from drag races in Need for Speed Underground, where there are no corners. (laughs) Okay. So I have no idea how or when or if I'm supposed to shift down when I'm cornering. So I would like to understand how. How do you corner in manual transmission? Okay. For the sake of this conversation, we will remove the manual transmission aspect out of it. Hmm. But more or less what is mentioned in the driving techniques I've learned through is that, and I'm not so great at when I go on the racetrack about this, because I'm driving with my own car. I'm sure if you drive a race car or somebody else's car, that's a bit easier to do, but... While a lot of the driving techniques, and I know we're talking about video games, so driving techniques, but let me ramble about driving techniques for a sec. A lot of the driving techniques is like, when you're on the accelerator, you should be like 100% on the accelerator. And for sure, with video games, especially when you use analog controls or buttons, it's like 0-100. Like There's no 50% or things I like. Actually, PS2 buttons are analog. Really? Yes, this is a problem, actually, because the older your PS2 controllers are, the less good they are at detecting the sensitivity and it's a pain in the ass to try to find actual ps2 controllers that have good analog buttons okay in theory on the ex- like simulating an accelerator pedal with a, a zero to one a zero or one button is more or less fine yep you can use Usually- a ps1 controller and that works right usually where that is a problem is with braking and driving or steering i should say yeah, where you want precise input. You don't want a hundred percent brake. You don't want like like if you want fifty percent brake, you want fifty percent brake. But moral of the story is: let's imagine we're in a, not in a, a NASCAR oval, but let's say kind of a I forgot which GT game had that, but a, a, a test track oval, which is like especially for a top speed test track purposes, where it's long straight wide oval where you can literally stay let's assume floorboarded on the accelerator pedal and then continuing and doing that but let's imagine that i I forgot which track is this but one is super wide and then i know the other one is really smaller it's a tighter corner forgot the name of the track you can send the the feedback here or the the, we'll include it in follow-up i guess (laughs) but let's imagine we haven't. We started, and we'll we'll ignore the first tight corner. So all the way there. So you're accelerating, accelerating, and then you start to see the cones, right, or the the meter marks, and now oh, 200 meters, one fifty, hundred. That's usually when you start to do the braking. Like you do the brake, you do you, and that's usually what it's called. It's the braking zone because once you've entered the corner, theory says you should maintain your speed in the corner. No more braking, no more accelerating, especially in entry. Again, race drivers might be better than me in that. They'll say there's advanced technique where you play with that. But generally speaking, in a corner, you maintain speed. You don't decelerate, you don't accelerate up until a certain point. So... If we go back to your example that we're driving an automatic car, in theory, before you enter the or like just at the point where you're entering the corner, you should already be at your cornering speed. Right. And you should if I, I, I oh my goodness. I'll use racing terms like but like you should follow the apex, which is the point where in theory the half of the corner is completed, so you, you're about to start accelerate and in theory that's what happens is you break you enter the corner you maintain your cornering speed up until the apex which let's call it the metering point and then that's when you start reopening your steering wheel and start accelerating and 
in driving techniques lessons, they were saying like those two are tied together with a rope. So the more you steer, the less accelerator pedal you should put. If you start to close or open up your steering by going back to straightening up your wheels, it will allow your feet to move more and put more accelerator. So that's in theory where you start back accelerating and not maintain your cornering speed. So if you're in a place where you were start, you were still either accelerating or de- especially decelerating, and there, yes, there's techniques like late braking and stuff like that, but let's ignore that for a sec. In theory, if we then add the aspect of a manual car, if you need to maintain your speed in the first half of the corner, and even in the whole corner, you should be in a gear that allows you to maintain a speed and enough engine rpms for you to accelerate and exit the corner before you start shifting because like braking changing gears even if you do l2 techniques does a bit like especially with l2 technique it minimizes the balance the transfer of weight that the car does like braking will put the weight up front of the on the front wheels for example you want to minimize that as much as you can while cornering because you're not in a straight line, so there's more, let's call it the risk of having things go south. Yeah. Because the Gs are moving uh, from your center of gravity and all that fun stuff. So with that in mind, if I return the question to you and I ask you, when should you downshift? While I'm breaking before entering the corner. Aha. Yeah. You should not downshift in the corner. Because yeah. you do that, and then you maintain your speed, and then you accelerate, and you, you're in a gear that you're properly set to exit the corner, and usually maybe three quarters of a quarter, it's straight enough that it's safe to to shift, and you might have a short like a short gearing, so you might need to shift to get speed, and all that fun stuff is okay, because you're more or less like driving straight. So yeah. That answers my question. It does. I think it would be really cool if Gran Turismo license tests had like a manual driving school where they teach you this shit. Because I don't drive, but it would be cool to understand how manual transmission works. Well, I guess this, like like you explained, it's not really a manual transmission thing. It's really just like, because I don't know anything about manual transmission, I just assumed that there was something that I was missing. And the something I was missing is like, well, yeah, you do it while you brake. Right, right, and that's that's why they also like that's why the this, the ill until technique comes where you have two feet, but you need to manage three pedals, right? Yeah, and you need to depress those three pedals more or less at the same time while braking, so that you keep your RPM in the right range and not cause too much weight transfer. So yeah, that's. It's pretty fun. Again, I guess that's... In the case of Initial D, which is a game that does not have uh, gear assist because you don't... It's not like Gran Turismo where there's a gear flashing that tells you, you should be in this gear for your corner, right? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And even that is, I feel, is always a bit wrong. Yeah, sometimes it's pretty wrong. Um, Is there like a... Is it just by feel that you learn what the target gear should be for that stuff? Or... Is there like some path you can learn or um like in my case, like I, I do the race maybe two or three times and then I have like a general idea what the gears should be just from fucking it up enough. <laughs> yes, and if you think about it, that's even how professional racers do it. Like yeah, but they, they don't they like have... slam into the wall and do it. <laughs> I mean I would hope not. No, because I, I think what comes with practice is a sense. It was. It is this sense yeah. of okay, yeah. I remember like ten years ago, or I, I exaggerate a bit, but even like it, like a couple of weeks ago, I went on this racetrack. This is the same type of corner, so I can use those techniques, and then that's how you apply things. But it, I know you. If you haven't changed too much, you always in in car video games you tend to use the same cars too, so you also get to know your gearing of the car, right? Yeah. Although I would. Like initial D is very much an arcade race game, and right. like I realized this week that if you bump into another car, the other car is a bar of soap that just slips in front of you, and you can't do anything about it. So there are a lot of wonky things about the physics in that game, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not as 
simulator e as Gran Turismo. Not at all. Like, it's WRX, but it doesn't feel like a Gran Turismo WRX at all. Right. So... Maybe the gear ratios are the same, though. I don't know. Possibly, yeah, because, again, if it... I forgot the top RPM of WRX, but if it's more than 7,000 RPM, it's a bit off for the type of engine. So, like, you, you do know that on that type of car, you get most of your acceleration power through, let's say, 2,500 to 5,000. So mm. that's usually your sweet spot. Like, my Focus RS, because of the turbo, it's like 2,500, 27 sometimes too, to... 55, 5600. If you go to redline, like it's useless because the turbo has died off, so it's not giving you more torque. Mm. So you stay in that. You you start to learn that for this car, for example, you stay in that range, and that's what you should aim for. Is trying to figure out this range where should you wait maybe a second more to go to up to redline and then shift, or wait that or. I know there's a calculation on telling you like, oh, is it safe to downshift? Uh, but I think it changes depending on the gearing of a car. Uh, my math might be wrong on this, but like, I know from different cars, like some of them, they, they might remove like 1500 RPMs when you, da- or they might increase by 1500 RPM when you downshift, things like. So you also know if I'm at 4000, is it safe for me to downshift or I'll hit redline? And kind of do a mechanical mm. overread because the wheel are spinning too much. So that makes sense, yeah. So that you'll have to just figure it out with a car, and you can do whatever you want because it's an arcade game. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of work, but luckily I'm not killing myself when I do it, so it's pretty good. Right. So you don't have this, uh, this the same feeling that I was referring to earlier about saying like, when I'm on the racetrack, I'm not 100 percent on the accelerator sometimes <laughs> because you know I'm driving my own car. Yeah. Uh, so so yes, and it's funny because that was brought up in some of the academies. I've and it's like, hey, you know, we're in a straight line. You can you can go 100 percent. I'm like, yes, I know, it's my car. And they're like, yeah. I know, I know, I know. I just tell you that to improve yourself because again, by doing that, you might gain. 20 25 kilometers per hour more when you so the the braking zone might come faster and you need to apply more brakes so it, it does changes the dynamics mm-hmm. which for sure uh driving games like these not like who cares but if you were using maybe Gran Turismo or even like more uh more like more professional simulator games that you can get on PC for example like those types of things just being more at 100% an accelerator in a straight line will change your braking zones when you should brake and how to figure out where you should brake is also something really hard to figure out. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, especially like on the old Gran Turismos where there's no racing line, there's no gear assist, you just have to figure it out. And like recently, I, well, recently, I want to say like in the last year and a half, I've noticed the little tiny square signs with the one, two, three, four as you get close to the corner or whatever, mm-hmm. which I had never noticed that those were there before. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did in license tests, but I didn't also realize that they were on the track. Uh, so they now on the are? track, like more often than not, I actually refer to those as sort of a guideline for where to turn. And that has helped tremendously because before without any uh, frame of reference at all, uh, I could not complete Laguna Seca to save my life. Uh, so, mm. And it's funny because in newer Gran Turismo games, they also allow you, or there's a setting to put cones into really? like the... Oh, I, yeah, I think I recall that you could just put the virtual marker or you could put cones because you could hit them. But the point about cones is they can be moved. And they can <laughs> be moved by other drivers driving the track too, That's right? That's true. So, and that's, that's one of the points they were saying is they can, like, because one of the recurring questions from, to the instructor was like, where should I figure out my, my braking cue? You know, like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm in the right spot. And they're like, yeah, don't rely on the cone because who knows? <laughs> maybe today, like, we kind of like rough, roughly put it at the 50 mark, but it's not at 60 meters mark in the end because. It was roughly calculated because we were late, right? So mm-hmm. you say you lose a couple, you lose or save meters, or you break too early, and things like, or people can hit the cone. So that's 
that's one of the parts that was hard to figure out because it was a, you need to figure out your cue on what to break, like you, to get those points. And it's important to find things that don't move. So, okay, like a mark on the wall, you know, unless they repave the wall, that could be problematic. But like a three, not good. It might disappear the three next time you come for the, to this racetrack. Yeah. And yeah, so it's, it was getting interesting, especially because... uh Part of the some of the academy that I attended, I had the opportunity. Like some of the instructors were professional racers, and like listening to how they kind of figure out those points and translate them is real fun and real interesting. And then you see that it is a craft, you know. Yeah. Uh, so the same way we talk about for multiple episodes about programming being our craft, like it's super fun to see people mastering their own craft, and it sounds easy, but it's not. I can imagine, yeah. Well, that's it for uh, Yannick Goes to Driving School. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like we are having a post-show that might be a bit longer than the... Or not longer than the episode, but like close to the length of the episode this yeah, week. Yeah, but... so we should probably cut it off soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, thanks everyone. Uh, see you on the next episode. See you in two weeks. <laughs>